Hello, baby. Welcome to the Smart People Podcast. Sit back, grab a drink, tune in your brain. Ask not what your country can do for you. This nation will rise up. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast. I am Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. Sorry, it's been a little bit longer than normal. John, for some reason, thinks it's okay to go on vacation. And work. No, mostly vacation. Weren't you just at the beach? Don't lie to me or the listeners. Yep, I was just at the beach this weekend. It was glorious. Perfect weather. Ah, that's awesome. Well, I was here slaving away at this this wonderful podcast, so I'll keep it afloat while you go sunbathe. No big deal. This week, it was it was actually a good time. I talked to Professor Kathy Davidson. She's a professor at Duke University and a prominent author. Obviously, she has a PhD. That's what we do here on this program. She got her PhD from Binghamton University. She has written over 18 books, and she focuses on technology, cognition, learning, the digital age. Her newest book is Now You See It, How the Brain Science of Attention Will Transform the Way We Live, Work, and Learn. And I really like that because... You know, I'm always hearing and inundated with this whole ADD, ADHD thing. And I I wanted to see how, what the new science and everything is. And Roach, I think you really would have enjoyed this one because she talks a lot about, you know, the things that are near and dear to your heart, the Twitter and the Facebook and the constant information overload. Basically the fact that you can't do one thing ever. You're doing like 12. I'm doing 12 right now. Right. Like I, can't you can't it. sit still. Yeah. And and the thing she talks about it really cool. She says, by doing this, you create this thing called attention blindness and you actually really diminish the scope of your, your world, your views, your everyday life, because you will miss things that are massive that are, and I'm not saying you, I'm saying people in general, everybody knows you don't miss anything, but you'll miss these monstrous things. I mean, there's a very popular study where uh, people are told to watch a video and count how many times these people pass a basketball back and forth. And in the middle of this video, a gorilla or a, a person in a gorilla suit walks in between them. And something like 50% of the people in the study don't even notice the gorilla walking there. So the, the whole point is by focusing on too many things at once, you actually don't catch things that could be important. See what I'm saying? No, I get it. And I've seen that video and I'm one of those people that did not see the person in the gorilla costume the first time it walked through. It blew my mind. And I would probably say it's higher than 50%. And of all the people that I showed the video, not one person noticed it. How is that possible? I, I, it blows my mind when she told me this and I'd heard of the study. I've never seen it or whatever. But I just feel like no, you know, no way that's me. And I think I asked her that either on air or off air. And she's like, you know, everybody thinks that, but everybody has this kind of attention blindness. So it's a cool thought because sometimes since speaking with her, I'll find myself stopping and just looking around and being like, am I 
noticing my environment, you know, rather than just taking it for granted. And, and obviously she covers some other extremely interesting things, but that was the one that really stuck with me. She also, she's done a lot of cool things. She created the Center for Cognitive Neuroscience at Duke University. Oh, there's one more, Roach, you might've heard of this. They did this, she was the spearhead at Duke. They did this thing, they gave every freshman an iPod and they did this and tried to integrate it into learning. And they said, you know, if you can come up with ways to use this in an educational fashion, we'll, we'll give you these iPods or something along those lines. She explains it better in the interview, but she's just an outside the box kind of person. And um, it was, it was really great talking to her. So I'll stop blabbing. I know Roach, you weren't there, so you don't have much to say. I guess I'll just turn it over to the interview. Here's Kathy. Let's go ahead and get started. Thank you for being on the podcast. As I mentioned, we, you know, we do try and get a feel for um, your background and your passions and how it is you got to, to be where you are. So could you kind of just give me a quick synopsis of what you do now and then how it is that you got there? Okay. I'm a professor at Duke University, and um, I, my home discipline is English, but I've never been a typical English professor. My um, interest and what I guess um, you would say my academic interest is in the last great information age, which was at the time of the American Revolution when um, steam-powered presses and machine-made paper and ink made books available to middle-class and working-class people for the first time in history. And many of the founding fathers and others were very worried about what it would do to attention and distraction and productive labor and violence among youth and sexual promiscuity around youth to have them be reading all these wild things called novels, which were the art form of the middle classes uh, made possible by mass printing. And um, when people started getting upset about video games and the internet and social networking and saying it ruined our attention and caused distraction and made people unproductive and led youth astray and was leading to sexual promiscuity and violence, et cetera, et cetera. I said, thinking, well, that sounds familiar. And um, so my the background that intellectually is probably most relevant to um, my book now you see it is exactly this, having done a, many years of research on the previous information age, I then knew which questions to ask about the present one. I've got, I mean, there, you know, I was a vice provost for interdisciplinary studies at Duke and was the R&D person and had the opportunity to help create the program in cognitive neuroscience at Duke. I also worked with Melinda French-Gates um, on her first philanthropic project at Duke, <coughs> excuse me, which then led to the um, creation of the um, Bill and Melinda French-Gates Foundation. Um, and I also worked with um, Apple on an iPod experiment at Duke. So there are many points of connection. Picking up where you left off, actually, I did read about the iPod experiment that you did, which involved giving, was it every freshman in one one year a, an iPod? Is that what it was? That's exactly right. It was 2003, and if you can remember back that far to the distant uh, era of 2003, the iPod was brand new, and there were those huge billboards all over the world of people in silhouette with their hair flying, and they were listening to music. And... Um, iTunes barely existed. The technology was very rickety, and there was almost nothing available from iTunes. 
And people were thinking of the iPod as a listening device. And Apple took um, six universities and said um, they would make us a, a deal on some technology we could give to our students for educational purposes. And I was vice provost for interdisciplinary studies at the time, and several of us were thinking about what to do. And, and we said, well, why not use the technology young people love? Let's go with the iPod. And if it has no educational use, let's ask our students to come up with educational uses and really turn it into an experiment and really experiment with not just with the technology but with putting students in the leadership role. So um, it was a little tricky because we only gave them to first-year students and within a few days the sec second, third, and fourth-year students were yelling and saying, hey, we pay <laughs> tuition too. How come we don't get a free one? And yeah. we said, that's a good point. So. How about this? If you can convince any professor to use an iPod in a class next semester for educational purposes, we'll give you, the professor, and every member of the class your own iPod. Well, that was a little Machiavellian because um, we tend to think that if you have to compete or work for something, it's more valuable, and we kind of were afraid if we just gave them free to freshman students instead of coming up with educational uses, they'd throw them in a drawer, they'd use them for listening to music, and that would be the end of the experiment. Right. So by making it challenging, we gave away more free iPods to students who had come up with educational uses than we did to the first-year students. Oh, wow. So it was a tremendous, incredible success, and everyone knows that Steve Jobs is no fool. Mm -hmm. For Apple, it was millions, maybe billions of dollars in free R&D done by Duke students. Um, wow. So, for example, a few years ago, I found the poster for the first quote-unquote podcasting uh, conference in the world, which was held by Duke students. And I was amused in the folder. There was this piece of yellow paper where we had all these different words like eye-casting, pod, broadcasting, broad pod. I mean, we had all these different yeah. names before we came up with podcasting. It's hard to remember that just seven years ago, podcasting didn't exist. Yeah. And, um, you know, when you think about the implications of that, there's now, I think, half a million academic lectures you can listen to on iTunes. Absolutely. So, um, so this was pretty amazing. It was a huge success. Okay. But boy, we took a lot of flack for it. We were on the cover of Newsweek. We were on the national news. People yelling that we were pandering to students, that this was the end of the world as we knew it. Yeah. Uh, not everyone loved what we were doing. I also wanted to ask you how you kind of got into things like, you know, the the book you wrote now, you see it, and and attention, and basically the, the neuroscience, as you say, even though you originally studied English. Well, first of all, my whole childhood, I thought I was going to be a math student, and I was sure I was going to go on in AI and artificial intelligence. That's actually my passion, and it's probably the thing I do innately do best in the I don't know what innately means, but it's my passion and it's what I thought until I made a big U-turn would be what I would pursue as a field. Um, and I went to a, I was, I'm dyslexic. I was not a good student. I did, I, you know, got scholarships to math camp the same year I probably got C's and D's on my report card in math. So, huh. um, you know, and it was a the kind of math cat where some of the other kids in the camp were going straight to MIT at age 13 and 14. So wow. really smart kids were there. Um, I was an, I had a quirky intelligence, so I could do very well in some kinds of things and really badly at others, and I, it wasn't always consistent. 
So I ended up at a small liberal arts college called Elmhurst College, not one that anyone's ever known of outside of Chicago. And I had a brilliant um, AI teacher um, who had been a Rhodes Scholar at Princeton and then went on to Oxford. She studied at Harvard she had, and MIT. She had all of the most famous inventors of artificial intelligence as her teachers. And she was teaching at this little liberal arts college as a part-time professor, and her dad was head of the philosophy department. And when I was applying to PhD for a PhD, she said, you know, there is no, I'm teaching at this school with my background, and it's because there are no women in artificial intelligence anywhere in the country. And um, I was a kid who had to work to get through college, I, meaning I had jobs the whole time through school. And the idea that I would get a PhD and not be able to get a job was just appalling to me. So I basically said, well, what do women go into? I guess they read books, so I'll go into English. It wasn't quite that cynical or that that um, negative, but it was a pretty late decision. And even my doctoral dissertation, which is on the very crusting 19th century journalist um, Ambrose Bierce, um, had a lot of semiotics and semantics in it. And um, you know, so I was I was a late bloomer in English and have never done English in a conventional way. And when the Internet was invented, I got pretty excited because it meant I could put my love of the history of technology, which was my main field, and my love of science and computer science and AI back together again. Great. The footnote to all of that is there's still um, – computer science still has fewer women than any other field. So in engineering, 50% of engineers are women in college, 50%, or 60% of medical students and students in medical school are women. Uh, in computer science, it's still less than 10%. I guess this transitions into, I wanted to talk to you about uh, your your brand new book that's just coming out, Now You See It, How the Brain Science of Attention Will Transform the Way We Live, Work, and Learn. And the title alone caught me because that key word, attention, is something that is a hot button, as as we talked about, with all the things that are instantaneous these days with the Twitters and the Facebooks and the video games. And I, my first thought when I think about that is all this ADD, ADHD, all these drugs and everything. Is this a, a, a new problem? Is this an old problem with a new name? Is this even a problem at all? Well, I think all of those questions are wonderful, really wonderful questions, and they can all be answered kind of in good ways and bad ways. Um, I personally think that there's something way wrong in a culture that's now up to about 26% of entering college students have been tested, diagnosed, or medically, pharmaceutically treated for some kind of learning disorder. That can't be right. right. I mean, something is so wrong. And so I think the first way I'd answer your question, as I said, that was a complicated question and there are lots of different answers, but the first way I'd say is clearly there is a relationship between the pharmaceutical industry and the diagnosis. So I would say um, the first thing we have to be really careful about is using is using drugs as a first rather than a last resort to treat kids. Whether whatever ADD is, that's a real problem. Some of my students take um, performance and they take the drugs like Ritalin, to enhance their performance on standardized tests so they can get scholarships to college. Mm -hmm. That is so twisted on every level and so scary to me since we don't really understand the long-term side effects of drugs like Ritalin. So right. two, um, one of the teachers I profile in the book, I don't really talk about the future much in the book. I really talk about now because I think we've already gone through a change 
but our institutions have been very, very slow to change. But I also interview lots of people, not just famous people, but lots of ordinary people who are finding phenomenally interesting solutions that we can all learn from, again, not in the future, but right now. They've already done it, and I think it's important for all of us to have models that we can adapt and learn from and follow in our lives. One of the models is somebody who passed away many years ago, and she was my uh, mother-in-law, my late mother-in-law, who taught in a three-room school in rural, very rural Alberta, Canada, from the 1950s to the mid-1980s. She taught well beyond retirement age and was a legendary, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant teacher. But she was the first person that actually said to me, you know, I love kids, I love teaching, but something has changed in my students in the last decade, and she met from the 70s and 80s, so long before the internet existed. And I said, why do you think it is? And her diagnosis was twofold. She thought her own experience was that the kids' diet had changed hugely, and they were eating far more both refined sugars and chemicals in processed fast food than they had before. And she could, she said she was noticing, for example, after lunch, when they would eat in the school cafeteria with this food with all these additives in it and so much sugar and salt that they would act in this way after lunch that was really different than they acted before. It was still at a time when they tended to have hearty country breakfasts in the morning and then eat this school food at lunch that was already processed food. And she was the first person who ever said, pay attention to food additives. That's a great point. Diet changes. That's a great point. Again, this is before the Internet. Right. Second thing she noticed before the Internet was parents, even in rural Alberta, were driving parent kids to school, whereas she, at age 17, would ride half-broken horses to school, 30 miles to school through wilderness in grizzly country to put miles on these horses before they could sold, be sold to other ranchers as broken horses, as, as horses that were already um, trained horses. And after that, she would walk. And so she was riding and walking, and all the kids did. Suddenly, parents were driving their kids a mile when before that, a mile would have been a normal distance. And there were school buses taking kids, and kids were having play dates. And she was noticing that the kids were fidgety. And so she really, as part of her pedagogy, teaching academic subjects to third, fourth, and fifth graders, would incorporate more and more movement in the classroom. So she would do things like have spelling bees where if they got the right answer, they would have to not just give the answer, but they'd have to jump up from their seat and jump in place for like two or three minutes in order for the answer to count as the correct answer. And it was fun. The kids had a blast doing it. But she said they learned more because they were using their bodies physically in a way that they weren't. So that, I've never forgotten that. That seemed really profound to me. And it, neither of those is about the Internet, but they're about, they're important because as we, it's so easy for us to blame the Internet for things that well may be large-scale epidemiological, sociological changes in things like the way we diagnose things, the way we prescribe medicines, the way our diet has changed, the way our exercise levels have changed. Is it the Internet or is it these very large, complex other factors? Right. I, I'm really suspicious of anything that blames one factor on yeah. change. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm not one of those people that, you know, you hear a lot of times, oh, I wish we could go back to the old days when things were simpler. And I'm the one that says, like, when's the last time you picked up a road map when you were lost? You know, I don't want to I don't want to go back to those days. <laughs> and simpler is still relative. I mean, you know, the first speeding ticket that's ever given is for somebody who's driving in um, the Midwest 
at the breakneck speed of 11 miles an hour. <laughs> um, my other favorite example from history is when Congress tries to prevent Motorola from doing what they thought would be a disaster, cause just chaos and havoc, which is putting a radio in the dashboard of, of Ford motor cars. Wow. So things that seem like they're causing disasters now, all it really means, on one level, what we're saying is this is new. Some of what's new is good. Some of what's new isn't good. Right. Just because it's new doesn't mean it's good. Just because it's new doesn't mean it's bad. But it is new, so we're having to pay attention in a different way. And I like to say distraction is our friend. If we're distracted by something, it should make us alert to a changed condition where our habits aren't serving us. And we need that in order to change our habits. If we're not paying attention to our habits, they're automatic and they're not serving us well. Okay. Well, I want to get back to your book a little bit more because it's it's extremely interesting. It's a topic that I'm very interested in myself. I wanted to talk to you about the the brain science of attention because that's all fairly new information and it changes, you know, as you explain it, it kind of changes the way we see um, attention, and then it changes our life. So I was hoping you could kind of give us a quick overview of the actual science that you use and that we utilize to understand these things. Absolutely. Um, the most basic element that I talk about is um, attention blindness, or what psychologists call kind of awkwardly inattentional blindness. And it's the phenomena that um, means that Every baby can pays attention to everything, and it learn a baby learns what is is or isn't important to pay attention to. So, if you've ever watched a baby be mesmerized by shadows, they don't they might find that more more interesting than grandpa. Um, but society is very early telling them no, it's important to pay attention to grandpa, and it's not important to play pay attention to fan blades and shadows. Um, so you learn attention, you learn how to focus, you learn what to focus on. But the irony is this great gift we have of being able to focus means that in order to pay attention to something, in order to focus, we're not paying attention to anything else. We're really, our brain is not just looking at something, it's not looking at other things. That's what attention is. It's selecting and very carefully and selectively choosing what to pay attention to, what to focus on. And it's so hard for us to see this that there's a brilliant experiment that was conducted in the 70s, and then when the technology got better, it was reconducted in 1999, um, which you may have seen on YouTube. It's now quite famous. Um, and it's just you have people watch a video of six people throwing basketballs back and forth, and you have them count how many times people are tossing basketballs um, uh, only if the people are wearing black shirts. You don't count the number of white shirts. People, of times basketballs are being passed by people wearing white shirts. And the video stops, and then you ask the questioner, ask the audience, how many basketballs did you cause? You um, see tossed. And if if you counted 15, you got a perfect score. But then the questioner says, and how many of you saw the gorilla? And about 60% of people who are so focused on counting the basketballs miss the fact that a person in a full gorilla suit, head to toe, walks in right among the six basketball tossers, <laughs> right there walks away after nine seconds on screen, and 60% of people don't see the basketball. I don't understand it. I, I've I, heard that, but I cannot it, fathom it. It's so unfathomable. And um, there's another, there are many of these tricks. There's another one that works to train pilots, where you make the pilot navigate through all this complicated stuff and wind currents and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then the pilot finally lands the plane. It's all done with a simulator, thank goodness. Because then you show the pilot the simulation again, 
and they are so proud that they did everything perfectly. And what they don't see is they landed their plane on top of another plane, parked sideways on the runway, just at the moment when the questioner tester is saying, fantastic, you're about to come in, just land the plane safely and you're all done. The pilots are so relieved that they're past the main experiment, they don't see that they're landing their plane on another plane. Right. It's astonishing, and it's you almost have to be fooled into believing it because you cannot believe that you would make the mistake. You just cannot until you're trapped in it. But if you miss the gorilla and the other plane, you can miss anything in the world. And it's very important to remember that because as we're talking about multitasking, what we have to realize is actually there's a whole world out there we're missing. And we always are. But with the right tools and the right partners and the right methods, we can actually find ways to see much more of the picture than we actually do in our everyday lives. And that's really the method of now you see it. We've gone through a huge cultural change with the Internet. And everybody's so worried about multitasking that they're missing incredible opportunities that this new world offers them. And um, we have to take a, we have to pause and really understand ways that, in fact, we can pay attention in better ways to the changes that are happening everywhere around us. It's not the future. We have changed. We don't see how much right. we've changed. Right. And we need to really change our, our world of work and school to take advantage of these changes. Well, you know, and that's funny when you were talking about work because I know that work has basically become this thing that you can do anytime, any place, and it's a good thing and a bad thing. Mm -hmm. We've joked even on this podcast that I feel like I get more work done in a day than my parents probably did in a week, mm -hmm. but, you know, and it's true, but how do you or, or what do you recommend for using our time properly now that we can have this work-life thing, and one can take over the other? That's another one of those huge questions that, that I'm so glad you're asking them because, in a sense, that is the gorilla of our, of our lives. And, um, you know, most HR departments still act as if we all punch a punch clock and we come into our offices and we work in the same old way and we never work home at home at night, which we know is not true. You know, I don't know about... I actually have a physical office I go into. I don't go into it eight hours a day. I go in probably four hours a day, but I probably work 20 hours a day. But my physical office is almost comical. You know, I can cut the, close the door to set out, shut out the noise in the corridor, but then I turn on my computer and the whole world, who cares if the door is closed? The whole world <laughs> is coming at me on exactly, my computer. Exactly, exactly. And it's my personal life as well as my professional life. And as you said in your in your question, it's the opposite. I go home at night, and I might want to be entertained on the computer, but there's an email from my supervisor saying, your grant budget stinks, and if we don't get that submitted correctly by noon tomorrow, we're going to lose $2 million. Well, needless to say, there goes my leisure time. I'm up all night working on the grant, and we've all had that experience. We actually have the software now that would allow us to clock our work in a much saner way so that I could actually log into a system that says I'm working and allow me to get credit for the ways we're working. You know, we spent the whole of the 20th century creating worker protections, the eight-hour day, child labor laws, weekends, vacation time. All of that stuff was very hard fought for. We've kind of lost all of it in the 21st century, and we haven't figured out new ways of protecting ourselves so that we do have some leisure time. And you were totally right about how much you get done. The statistics are that we now work 
more than any other people on earth except for the South Koreans. So that's interesting because we think of America as not productive anymore. Wow. I didn't. No way. Yep. We rival the South Koreans and we're the number two most productive people on the planet. Wow. We work more hours per week than our parents worked and our parents worked more hours per week than than their parents did. America is the only country in the world that doesn't have required national mandatory vacations. We're one of the few that don't have national benefits like healthcare systems and so forth. You know, so in terms of the of our work life, we are far more productive and less taken care of than just about anywhere else in in, in the world, which is most Americans don't know that. So, um, you know, that's interesting. That's very very interesting and Again, we have institutions that we took 100 years to create for the industrial age. We're just beginning to think about what would it look like to protect both employers, because we want people to make, to be, we want corporations to be profitable, but also employees in this new arranged workplace. That's one of the gorillas that I think we have to address as a, as a culture, as a society, and as a global society. I know that we're getting close on time here, but I love this subject because I have struggled with it since I entered the workforce. I think that, you know, uh, the people—I don't want to say bosses, but maybe a little more uh, old school—they they really concentrate more on hours worked than amount of work, and right. you have to go to an office where you can do everything from home. Right. What what uh, things have you noticed, or have you come up with, or solutions? Or, or what should we be moving towards to give us these safeguards and to maybe keep us as productive or make us more productive, but also give us that kind of health issue or, you know, work-life balance? Right, right, because work, we know that if you work too much, it's bad for your health. So it may be more productive now, but if we're talking about a whole lifespan, it's not going to be productive. We're going to be doing damage to ourselves if we don't find ways to have some leisure time. Right. Um I profile IBM in the book because I could think of no more boring 19th century business. It's one of the only businesses from the machine age to survive in the present. It invented the punch clock, so I thought, what better metaphor? It almost went under in the 1990s, and it went through huge labor reforms. Interestingly, the company that invented the punch clock now has 40% of its employees no longer punching a clock. 40% IBM. Isn't that amazing? That's incredible. Most people have no idea. Most people think it's Google. They've gone to a method of work they call endeavor-based work, which is exactly what you pointed to. Instead of worrying about your hours, it worries it, it measures productivity. And it measures productivity both from supervisors evaluating how you do on a project to your peers evaluating how you do on a project. Wow. And much of IBM now is organized almost the way movie companies are, where you get the best film editor, the best costume designer, the best prop designer. You all come to a location you work intensely, 24 hours a day on a project, and when the project, when the movie is done, cut, you know, it's a wrap, everyone goes off, and some people then reassemble in other projects later. But you, you give yourself systems of credit for the work you accomplish on that project, and there's merit raises at IBM for all workers, including hourly workers, not just executives, based on endeavor and accomplishment, not on hourly uh, number of hours put in. Is IBM a perfect company? I'm sure it's not. It wasn't my job to be a you know a shill and a, a advertisement for IBM. I was right. fascinated that this behemoth of a company has flourished by really coming to grips with some of the kinds of issues 
that we all are facing. And uh-huh. I think we can learn from their, from what this huge company is doing in our other lives. I also found tiny companies that have come up with brilliant solutions um, to workplace challenges. They all say benefits are key, though. If you don't stabilize benefits, health care, and other benefits, you can't have a flexible workplace. Huh. And one thing that's holding America back in the world economy is we don't have stable guaranteed benefits that allow people to work in more flexible ways. Without that safety net, you can't have flexibility. It's the safety net that allows you maximum innovation. Yeah, I totally I can totally see that and understand it having having been in, you know, the situation of the great benefits and then situation of zero, you know. So well, you know, Kathy, I want to say thank you so much. This has been incredible. Um I really enjoyed talking to you. I wanted to ask, do you have a website that you can lead our, our listeners to? I do. Go to um, www.kathydavidson.com, and right. you'll find a website there. Um, I also am co-founder of an, edu- uh, an educational um, foundation called Haystack, H-A-S-T-A-C, and that's www.haystack.org. And um, that's more for educators, um, primarily college, but also high school educators. But I think you'll find tons of content at both of them, and I hope I hope that's useful to your listeners. Definitely, and 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 uh, we'll make sure to put a link to that on there. And again, your your book now you see it: how the brain science of attention will transform the way we live, work, and learn. It's fantastic. We'll have a link to that uh, as well on our website. So, Kathy, again, thank you so much. Thank you, and thank you for such a thoughtful conversation. I I learned a lot, and I totally enjoyed it. Thank you. All right, thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Well, that was our interview with Kathy Davidson. Uh, Roach, what would you think? I thought it was awesome. I enjoyed the interview. As I mentioned before, I have problems focusing on one thing, and this would have been perfect for me. But, you know, it's a shame that I was out frolicking somewhere on the beach. You probably were long walks on the beach and stuff. That, That is what I enjoy. Don't forget to head over to the website, www.smartpeoplepodcast.com use our amazon widget or our new amazon banner anytime that you make a purchase on amazon remember to go through our site you go to it you click on the link send you over to amazon you use it as normal we get a little kickback it helps support the show couldn't be easier and we really appreciate it when you guys do it and it costs you nothing don't forget that you forget that every time wrench and we're on twitter at smart people pod feel free to join the conversation thanks for tuning in be sure to listen next week and we'll bring you some more smart interesting stuff we promise see you guys later